Welcome to another episode of Adam's Corner. It's the special year-end episode of Adam's Corner where I recap my favorite films of 2023. And a lot of times uh, I get requests from people who are asking me to, what's my favorite film? And since I'm a member of the Southeastern Film Critics and the North Carolina Film Critics, I thought this would be the easiest way to do it, just to uh, put it as an episode of my podcast with me doing a solo show and telling you about my best experiences with new films that I saw for the first time in 2023. Some of them are going to be perennial favorites that I return to, and some of them are probably one-time watches, but good on their own terms. So anyway, just wanted to uh, give a little intro as to what I'm going to be doing on this episode. And this just saves me the trouble of having to reiterate over and over again what my favorite films of 2023 were. So without further ado, I'm going to start at number 10. And at number 10 was a film that, actually I'm cheating a little bit here to be quite honest, because this is a film that was actually released in 2022. And had I known about this film, I did know about it, but I didn't think it was going to be as great as it was, or I didn't know that I would respond to it as strongly as I did. Let's say that. As I can. Mission? For what? We accidentally built the lunar module. A little too small. How'd that happen? Listen, are you good at math? Yeah. Do you get a perfect 100 on every test? No. Okay. We need a kid like you to test this accidentally smaller version on the lunar surface and soon. Stan, you're our only hope. Okay. Great. Let's forget about all this for now. We'll come back to this part later. First, let me tell you about life back then. Living in the Houston area in the late 60s, it was a great time and place to be a kid. But the world was changing, and so was how we saw ourselves in it. Right on. (laughs) Mom, is that one a hippie? Yeah, yeah, that's a hippie. How about that one? No, his hair's not long enough. But he's wearing bell bottoms. Okay, that's a hippie. I think I like hippies. There's a covert operation. That means it does not exist. No one can know about this. Not your parents, not your brothers, not your sisters. No one. I am talking about Richard Linklater's animated film from 2022, Apollo 10 and a Half, A Space Age Childhood. I first became aware of this by listening to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, and he was talking about how wonderful this was and how wonderfully nostalgic it was. And it's basically the fictional tale of a fourth grader who becomes the first person to land on the moon. Some of the voice talents you get here are Glenn Powell, Jack Black, Zachary Levi, and Josh Wiggins. Jack Black does most of the narration in the film. Uh, Richard Linklater, of course, is the director behind such films as School of Rock and the Before Trilogy, and we could go on about his career. Boyhood is another one that comes to mind, of course. Uh, And he's already done previous animated films, Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly, which are both interesting, uh, if not not imperfect, but interesting, I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, Apparently, he originally got the idea for this film in 2004 in between those other two animated films. And he was planning to create this film in live action, but decided to go with an animation style influenced by Saturday morning cartoons due to, to the uh, playful nature of animation. 
and home movies created in Houston, Texas during the 60s when he was growing up were used for research, and some are actually included in the film. Uh, it was shot in 2020, wrapped just before the pandemic, uh, and uh, parts of the filming were done in front of the largest green screen in Texas, and parts of the film which were shot in live action were animated during post-production during a using a technique similar to rotoscoping, which he had used previously. It, uh, and it actually made its debut March 24th, 2022, but again, I didn't catch it until the summer of 2023. What a wonderful film this is. It's just an incredible, uh, incredibly nostalgic look at what it was like to grow up in the 60s and the 70s. And if you're like myself who grew up during those times, uh, I'm not so much the 60s for me, but I was born in 1970, so growing up in the 70s, uh, this film really resonates, and it brought tears to my eyes more than once. Uh, the sweet nostalgia that is presented on film, on display here, rather, is just uh, quite overwhelming, uh, because that's such these times have gone and they're never coming again, obviously, and we've just moved so far away from those more innocent times, and this film reminds us of that, and I just had just such a profoundly moving experience with this film. I haven't revisited it since I saw it initially, but I can't wait to see it again really soon and hopefully share it with some friends who have not seen it. So my 10th favorite film of 2023. It's a little bit of a cheat, I admit, but it's Apollo 10 and a half, directed by Richard Linklater. Also add that the film is streaming currently on Netflix, and it was made specifically for Netflix. So thank goodness for them putting up the money for a project such as this. God bless them, as the saying goes. My ninth choice for favorite film of 2023 is a film that came and went very, very quickly, unfortunately. Uh, again, and I have to give my son credit for this one, um, because this is another one that probably would have escaped my radar. I remember when it came out, it didn't get particularly good reviews. Uh, it was A Good Person, written, directed, and produced by Zach Braff. And considering Zach Braff had such made such positive waves with his uh, film from the early 2000s Garden State uh, I expected that there would be a rapturous reception for this film and there's a, a tremendous uh, disconnect on this 7.1 IMDB and 58% on Rotten Tomatoes so there is uh, the critics didn't like this one but apparently uh, those who frequent IMDb did like it. So more of an audience favorite than a critical favorite. I was a fan of the film. It was uh, released in March, and it is, um, it's it's a drama, you might as well say. It's about an aspiring musician played by Allison Johnson, and she causes an accident while driving with her eyes off the road. And the accident that she causes uh, is tied to the Morgan Freeman character. Don't want to say too much about it. But uh, she spirals down a road of drug addiction and uh, connects with Morgan Freeman, but finds out eventually that they have more in common than just... There, there's a tragic connection, I, I shall say, uh, between the two of them. Uh, but just a very, very moving film. Uh, Morgan Freeman doing what he does best surprised and disappointed that this film didn't do better but a good person uh, 
uh, from March of this year, as I'm recording this, that is. This is Bella. Bye, bye. Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello, Bella. No! She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she is progressing at an accelerated pace. Tell me, where did she come from? I shall. For it is a happy tale. Yes, my choice for number eight on the best films of 2023, or the ones I responded most strongly to, would be Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things. Now, let me preface this by saying that Poor Things is not a perfect film. It's two hours and 22 minutes, and like too many films that are being released these days, it doesn't know when to quit when it's ahead. This film would have been perfect at about an hour and 45 minutes, but it just goes on for another 35 minutes that are really unnecessary. But With a few judicious trims, this film would have really gotten a lot higher on my list. Having said that, uh, I have a really interesting relationship with the films of Yorgos Lanthimos, um, he, of course, really burst. He had made a couple of films, but really burst onto the scene with The Lobster. That was the first film that got him in the, uh, the, the public consciousness, I guess you would say. And then he's done several other things. Uh, the Killing of a Sacred Deer uh, is the one he did with Nicole Kidman. And uh, then he did The, uh, the Favorite. Unfortunately, the problem I have with most of Yorgos Lanthimos' work is that he doesn't know how to end a film. His films just kind of drift off after he set up the premise. And uh, those three films I just mentioned, The Lobster, Killing of a Sacred Deer, and The Favorite, they all just had non-endings. And I'm not a big fan of non-endings. I feel uh, my opinions on this are that if you've taken the time to write and direct a film, why cop out and not have an ending? Uh, you know, to me, it just reeks of laziness and lazy writing in general. You back yourself into a corner and you're too lazy to figure out how to get out of that corner. And I felt like that's what he was doing. Uh, I'm proud to say that this is the first film that I've seen of his where there's actually an ending. An ending. And it's a good ending. Uh, it fits the film that's come before. And of course, the film is kind of a reworking of the theme of The Bride of Frankenstein in some sense. Uh, Willem Dafoe's the scientist. He uh, finds Emma Stone. Uh, she uh, attempts to commit suicide and she's pregnant with child. He uh, removes the child and puts the child's uh, brain in her body and we follow her journey as she learns about all kinds of things, uh, most notably her sexuality in this film. And there's copious amounts of nudity that's been talked about uh, way too much in the press. Uh, but it's a good performance by Emma Stone. And it's a good performance, really, by Mark Ruffalo, who is her suitor at one point, And he's never been funnier. And Willem Dafoe, of course, what can you say? He's always good. So anyway, Poor Things is, uh, it's not my favorite film of the year, obviously. It's uh, number eight on the list. It's a good but not great film, uh, but I did respond to it in certain ways, and there were things I really did admire about it, so I, have, I had to uh, be honest and put it on the list. We're up to number seven with this next film, and it's a documentary that I saw back in January. It's uh, released by Sony Pictures Classics, and I 
am fortunate enough in that I get to see a lot of their releases before they come out theatrically. And this, uh, in fact, sometimes I get so many of them, I, I can't see them all. I just don't have the time. And this was one that uh, I received back in January and almost didn't get around to watching it and then somehow squeezed it in. Well, it was wonderful. It was fantastic. One of the greatest issues invoked by the life of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the relationship between means and ends. No question is more important than that. I love those books. I love those books. Robert Caro's work goes so beyond empathy. There is healing in it and strength and power. The power broker helped to shape how I think about politics. He reminds us how power changes all of our lives. If we understand power, then maybe we can imagine a better future. Bob Gottlieb is a superb editor. The most important editor of the post-war period. So about how many books have you edited? Between 600 and 700. Bob cared as much about the writing as I did. Two guys are the best in their field. Bob Carroll, the greatest political writer of our time. Bob Gottlieb, the greatest editor of his time. Robert Carroll's in his 80s, and everybody wants the story to be finished. He's running out of time. He's industrious. He would hate to think he was like me. <laughs> he does the work. I do the cleanup. Then we fight. We will get this next book when he's damn well ready to give it to us, and not until then. Oh, so that's what we got today. For them, words matter, mood matters, rhythm matters, commas matter, semicolons matter, and the fights go on. Sometimes I'm looking for an adjective, I make a whole list. But if he overuses them, it doesn't read well. We've had some real fights about sections that he's wanted to cut out. It was not that I was trying to tear his bleeding heart out of his chest. They both want the best book possible. They both do. And they both want it for each other. 50 years. Five books. 4,888 pages. And they're not finished yet. A lot of angry things were said. It was not because I didn't think it was valuable material. But I just wasn't going to do that. Okay. We're ready to go. Now that's a good ending. Because I'm editing. Because that's what I do. It's a, a documentary uh, on Robert Cairo and uh, his editor, the documentarian's father, Robert Gottlieb, as they work methodically to complete the final and fifth volume of Cairo's Lyndon Johnson biography. The name of the film is Turn Every Page, The Adventures of Robert Cairo and Robert Gottlieb. And um, the Robert Gottlieb actually passed away a couple of months ago uh, after this film's release. And it's a fascinating look into what it's like to edit books and the relationship that editors have with authors and uh, how they, uh, Robert uh, Cairo, uh, Robert Gottlieb rather, is just, uh, was, was an amazing editor for, uh, and you'll see in the film, uh, many of the people that he's worked with, it's just a staggering amount of talent in terms of the the in in the literary in the literary world. Uh, but this is just a terrific, terrific movie. Um, the uh, documentarian Lizzie Gottlieb, as I said, she's the uh, daughter of the uh, subject of one of the subjects of the film. She uh, began filming in 2016 after for years asking uh, them both to uh, let her agree to make this film. And it was after five years of filming, they edited film in 2021, and it premiered in uh, June 2022. And then, of course, he he passed away this year, so uh, the timing was was just right. Um, and it's just a really, really great 
a film about the creative process. Uh, and so turn every page, The Adventures of Robert Cairo and Robert Gottlieb. That makes my number eight on the list. And uh, we'll move up to the next one, which is uh, Godzilla Minus One. I think this is a film that no one was expecting to be as good as it was. Uh, it was time for the 70th anniversary of the release of the original Gojira, which was Americanized as Godzilla. And it takes place in 1945. It's a, a somber reworking of the themes from the original Godzilla. And it's uh, about a... Um, uh, well, it may, it's mainly about the main character of the film and his uh, losses that he suffers as a result of Godzilla's rampage and his mission in life to eradicate Godzilla no matter what the cost. And so that's essentially what it is. It's Japanese. It's subtitled, in case anyone listening doesn't know that already. That's why you're not hearing a trailer, because don't you just hate it when you're listening to a podcast and they insert audio clips in a different from a film that was from a different language? Uh, I never understood that, but I digress. So uh, anyway, um, it's it's very good. It's a very good film. The effects are amazing for a film that was filmed for less than $20 million dollars. Uh, it's uh, quite impressive and it just makes it just it just goes to show where they went wrong with the americanized attempts at godzilla and i'm looking at you uh, 2014 gareth edwards godzilla and the 1998 one as well although contrary to popular opinion i actually thought the 1998 godzilla was better than the 2014 one because at least we did get to see godzilla it's no great film by any stretch of the imagination but when you have a Godzilla film as in 2014 and you don't see Godzilla until about 70 minutes into the film, you know you've got a problem. But that's another story. Anyway, Godzilla Minus One, uh, it just goes to show you that the Japanese know how to make a Godzilla film and uh, still can do it more effectively and on and with less money than the Americans can do. So Godzilla Minus One is number six on the list, and number five is a film that has gotten lots of rapturous praise, and it's from the uh, first-time writer-director Celine Strong, Past Lives. There's a word in Korean, inyon. It means providence or fate. Do you believe in that? That's just something Koreans say to seduce someone. What a good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? Yes, Past Lives made my number five, and sorry, I mispronounced Celine Song, not Celine Strong. Sorry about that. I just caught that. Uh, yes, it's a semi-autobiographical film uh, made by the writer and first-time director, 
And it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January of this year, and it was released in the summertime and received universal acclaim. And, uh, you know, sometimes that doesn't really matter much to me because uh, I've learned that uh, as the years are rolling on, I tend to disagree more and more with uh, a lot of my colleagues. Uh, However, this was a film that they got right. It uh, follows two childhood friends over the course of 24 years while they contemplate the nature of their relationship as they grow apart living different lives, and uh, as I said, it was inspired by real events from Song's life. Uh, it's a beautiful film, and it's uh, very elegantly directed. Uh, there's a nice visual style going on there that uh, keeps you in- invigorated as well, and uh, yes, it is a good film. I would definitely recommend. So Past Lives uh, from the, this past summer is my number five pick. My fourth favorite film of 2023 was uh, the latest film and possibly the last film from a great, great filmmaker, Mr. Ken Loach. For you. All right, lad. How come they're getting all that stuff? I've lost everything. I've left a war zone. Are you taking your photo there? You better delete that photo. They're just kids, man. Let them get in their house and get settled, man. I'm really sorry that happened. Can I say I'm surprised if you hear the stuff that come out within the pub. This has become a dumping ground, lads. We've been in this village all our lives, and we're supposed to share it with that lot. We don't even know them. Thank you for your kindness when we arrived. I really appreciate it. My name is Yara, by the way. What's yours? Tommy Joe Ballantyne. Do you mind me asking? Are you all right? When I was a little girl, I wanted to be a photographer and travel the world. If you've got a moment, you'll come back to the pub with me. I wanted to show you the photographs in here. All we are life, just gone forever. When you eat together, you stick together. My mother always said that. Some of the locals are struggling too. Everywhere's closed, even the school's gone. We can't even look after our own. Just one from film director who has made since the 1960s films about the working class and the struggles therein and his latest is uh, an, uh, typical of what he does his last several films the last two before this were just amazing amazing films I Daniel Blake which was a big uh, well received at the Cannes Film Festival in 2016 and then Sorry We Missed You in 2019 uh, both of those were just fantastic films this one is not quite as great as those those two films but it is very good and it's Ken Loach doing what Ken Loach does best And it's basically about a pub landlord living in a previously thriving mining community, struggling to hold on to the pub and keep it as the one remaining public space where people can meet in the town. And the tensions arise when Syrian refugees are placed there, and he strikes up a friendship with one of the refugees. And he decides to open up his bar, a room that he's not using there, and use it for the betterment of the community and some of the people who are more than a little bit racist, shall we say. Uh, they want to put a stop to that. So anyway, it's uh, Ken Loach. You know, his anger is still there. He's 87 years old. and uh, But it's amazing that the anger and the vigor is still there, and you can feel it. It's palpable in his filmmaking. Uh, it's written by his frequent collaborator, Paul Laverty. 
And uh, he says this is going to be the last film. Um, I'm crossing my fingers that maybe he'll think twice about that and because we really need him and we need his films uh, because they have such important messages. But he says it probably, quote-unquote, will be his last film. And you can understand that when uh, a director gets up in years, it, it is physically hard to do the types of things that are required to direct a film. So uh, The Old Oak from the great director Ken Loach is my number four pick. My number three pick for the year is a film called Shortcomings, another Sony Classic Pictures release from the summertime. My number three film from 2023 would be Randall Park's adaptation of the graphic novel of the same name, Shortcomings, which was released in August to little fanfare. Although it did get some good reviews, it was another Sony Pictures classic release. Uh, it stars Justin Mien as a snobby cinephile. Uh, of course, I obviously could relate to that character. Ben is a uh, the main character, and he's a failed film student who spends his days managing an art house movie theater and watching Criterion discs, uh, such as uh, Ozu's Good Morning. And he can't fathom a world where he isn't the prime arbiter of taste. Uh, of course, eventually his girlfriend decides she's had enough and she moves to New York City to pursue her own dreams. And it goes in different directions after that that are always interesting. And just, I, I don't know, it's just really a, a, a great comedy drama, I guess you would say. And um, yeah, it's just really, really a, a good film, Shortcomings. I, I really enjoyed it. Quite a bit, I must say. And this was another surprise, another film that I had little to no interest in when they sent it to me. And uh, I saw it and was quite delighted, I must say. Next film on my list was a documentary film, another documentary film, that's two. And this was uh, directed by Rob Reiner. And it was a documentary portrait of Albert Brooks, the comic, filmmaker, actor, voice actor. Uh, this is a terrific look at the life and times of Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks defending my life. Albert was a shining god of comedy. He was speaking directly to me. <laughs> Always something just different. He was like a comedic tornado. Just fearless and funny. He's so fucking hot. It took this to finally hear a compliment. <laughs> Can't wait till I'm dead. So here's the thing. We've been friends for like almost 60 years. I've always looked up to you and what you could do with comedy. I did a hundred variety shows. Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks. This, this isn't me. You're the only guy I know who would go on national television with a routine that you had never tried out. I went in the bathroom, I would come up with something, and I would go do it. Not only don't you have any money, but your sister is dead. That was funny. He was the first alternative comic. I think of him as the caviar of comedy. Yes, this was just a terrific documentary portrait of Albert Brooks. Uh, I could not believe this film was almost two hours. I literally felt like it was 20 minutes long. I, I looked up and it was over. It's one of the fastest moving film experiences I've had all year. And it was just totally absorbing. Uh, very insightful, 
and it was never, never dull for one second. I, I could have easily watched two more hours of uh, Rob Reiner and Albert Brooks discussing uh, the great Albert Brooks's career. And you don't have to be an Albert Brooks fan to really appreciate the film. Uh, there's just a lot of great uh, stories about uh, comedy from 50, 60 years ago that are great. And, and um, just it's the highs and lows of his career. And uh, just it's just extremely... Uh, just well done and uh, i knew that albert brooks is a great subject but i and i knew that it would be hard for this film to go wrong but it was even better than i had anticipated so albert brooks defending my life is number two on the list You don't tell a boy that's been left behind at Christmas that nobody wants him? What's wrong with you? There's nobody here, okay? So you stay out of my way, and I'll stay out of yours. Let me sleep in the Now, most of the kids dislike you, pretty much hate you. Teachers, too. You know that, right? I find the world a bitter and complicated place, and it seems to feel the same way about me. I think you and I have this in common. I don't think I've ever had a real family Christmas like this before. Thank you, Mary. You're welcome. History is not simply the study of the past. It is an explanation of the present. See, when you say it that way and throw in some pornography, it's a lot easier to understand. (laughs) I'd like to propose a toast to my two unlikely companions. Are you trying to lift down my shirt? No. Yes. You're going to get me fired. This is your Rubicon. Do not cross the Rubicon. The Holdovers. Ah, yes. Alexander Payne's The Holdovers. And it's no surprise that this film would be my favorite film of the year. It's a glorious return to form for Alexander Payne after a slight misstep with downsizing in 2017. Now, that film was uh, coming off of a spotless record that Alexander Payne had with such films as Citizen Ruth, Sideways, Election, uh, The Descendants, Nebraska. Those are all perfect or near-perfect films. And the downsizing was his misstep. And so a lot of people uh, took the opportunity to really trounce upon him for that for that failure and it was not a terrible film uh i thought it was um oh and i forgot about about schmidt that's another one in his um uh, resume of great films uh so i thought downsizing was a misstep but it had some interesting things in it uh it just didn't quite come together in the way that i'm sure he wished that it would have or audiences did either but it's it's um it's not the worst thing you will ever see but the holdovers is a glorious return to form for alexander payne and it also reunites him with paul giamatti from sideways which they made in 2004 and that was my favorite film of that year and for anybody who doesn't know or hasn't seen the film yet, uh, and I'll, this is spoiler-free, but I will just say that uh, Paul Giamatti's character, it uh, takes place in 1970, and uh, the setting of the film is just uh, the period detail, uh, the cinematography, it looks like a film that was shot 
around that time. It's amazing how they were able to put that together and pull that off. Uh, that's a whole other thing. But uh, Paul Giamatti is a professor at a boarding school, and essentially every year, one of the professors has to take turns and babysit, as it were, over the Christmas holiday, the students who can't get home on Christmas. And it's his turn for this particular year that the film in which the film is set. And basically, they all find a way home except for this one kid, and they grudgingly wind up stuck together, of course. And then eventually, through a series of misadventures, they bond, and they also befriend the uh, cafeteria worker who's provided their meals for them. She's grieving from the loss of her son in Vietnam. And anyway, uh, don't want to say too much more than that. It's just a great film filled with lots of wonderful observations about life and uh, done in that way that Alexander Payne can do as he only can do, I should say. And um, it's the kind of film that's getting rarer and rarer to see in theaters these days. And it's really just uh, a terrific, terrific film. And I'm hoping that Alexander Payne will keep on doing what he's doing. I'm hoping that he will be afforded the opportunity. And I hope this film will do well at the Oscars as it should. Uh, It's great. And uh, there's really nothing else to say about it. Now, having said all that, before I end this podcast, I would like to make mention of a few films that let me down this year. And a couple of these are films that people hold in high esteem. And uh, so we'll go quickly through these, but the most overrated, I would call these. And uh, I'm not saying these films are terrible, but they certainly didn't hit my sweet spot as they did a lot of other people. Number one on this list would have to be Barbie. Of course, it's the biggest grossing film of the year. It's no secret that I'm not a huge fan of Greta Gerwig uh, as a director. I feel like a lot of her, uh, she's she has some, some, she's not without talent, let's just say that. But I feel like her films are so steeped in their messages that she sometimes forgets to tell the story that she's sets out to tell when the film begins. Uh, Barbie is another one of those examples of, as she did with Little Women, she retrofitted Little Women to uh, fit with themes that are prevalent in today's society that are important themes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're not important, but they weren't as important at the time of the setting of Little Women, and so it didn't work for me. Barbie is a film that is all steeped in its message, and it's a good message. It is a great message. I don't have a problem uh, with the message, and I don't want to be misunderstood. It's about female empowerment and uh, the, the struggles that women have had, and I'm all for that. The problem I had with Barbie was you take the message away, and the film collapses in upon itself. And with filmmaking, you need to have a good story first and then lay your message on top of it. I feel, I feel like with Barbie, it was message first and then let's find a plot that we can retrofit to our message. And that just didn't work for me. So the message is good. It's the execution of the message that I didn't quite like. Now, that's not to say the film doesn't have some great things in it. The production design is spectacular. I don't need to tell anyone that. Uh, the songs, unfortunately, are pretty atrocious for me. I 
during the last 15 minutes it was a struggle not to walk out when Ken does his song and dance thing. That's just not for me. But I will say that the uh, the cinematography, production design, Margot Robbie is terrific. Uh, Ryan Gosling is terrific. Uh, all that stuff is good. And I laughed out loud. The opening scene was so clever with the, uh, the 2001 uh, homage and all that. Uh, good stuff there. But unfortunately, it was all downhill from there. And so Barbie, for me, just a mixed bag. And, uh, you know, I would just consider it overrated. Didn't hate it, but did not respond to it as a lot of other people did. Oppenheimer is number two on this list. Another film that made a lot of money. And thankfully, I'm, I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad it made money. It's serious adult filmmaking that we need more of. And it's non-franchise filmmaking. I'm all about that. But the thing about Oppenheimer to me was, it was, uh, I, again, Christopher Nolan's films just leave me cold. I don't think I have truly enjoyed a Christopher Nolan film since maybe The Dark Knight. Uh, the Dark Knight Rises was a mixed bag. It had problems, uh, and the rest of them have just been mediocre to not good at all, I would say. And so Oppenheimer, to me, is three hours of montages filmed in IMAX, uh, with, and I don't understand the choice of IMAX. Uh, he tries to defend it, saying that he shot it in IMAX because people's faces are as interesting as sweeping vistas or anything of that nature. Uh, I'm not in agreement with that, but he's the director. What do I know? Um, I just can't understand why you would go to all the trouble to shoot a film in IMAX when most of it takes place in courtrooms and consists of close-ups of people's faces. I don't know. And the whole film is three hours of montage with a blaring score that never ends. And it just... I never got on its wavelength. Uh, I admired the craftsmanship of it, but that is about all I can say for Oppenheimer. So another mixed bag. Again, didn't hate it. Admire some things about it, but I just feel like uh, I'm missing something that everybody else seems to be getting. Maestro, number three on this list. Maestro was uh, a real <clears throat> disappointment to me, and it's not really a good film. Oppenheimer and Barbie... I can say that they do have good things about them. Maestro's just not good at all, uh, unfortunately. With the exception of the technical details, uh, Bradley Cooper looks and sounds like Leonard Bernstein, and he does a terrific job conducting, but the film is two hours of him uh, struggling against his homosexual, homosexual urges, as it were. And so uh, it's two hours of that, and, I, you know, uh, all the production design in the film can't save it from it uh, from, from that when you don't really have a story, per se, uh, that's compelling. You don't learn anything about Leonard Bernstein in this film. If you don't know anything about him going into it, you're not going to know anything leaving the film. So uh, a good-looking film, but it's a hollow vessel, and there's just nothing there with the exception of uh, Bradley Cooper's uh, performance and Carrie Mulligan as his long-suffering wife. She's great too, but you know that's the problem with that. And uh, it's a shame that uh, Bradley Cooper decided to focus on his uh, romantic life as opposed to his professional achievements. The next film on this list had the same flaws, and that's Napoleon, another film that decided to focus more on the love affair of Napoleon and Josephine than it did on Napoleon's conquests on the battlefield. And as a result, it just really bored me, I'll have to admit. Uh, Talk to Me is a horror film 
that got a lot of buzz, positive buzz this year. Again, it's a mixed bag. I admire uh, some things about it. Uh, it's made by two Australian uh, filmmakers who started on, with online short videos, and uh, they got their chance to do a, uh, a big screen feature film. And there are some truly scary moments in the film. Unfortunately, they're spread so far apart. I don't think the first scare in the film was until about 50 minutes in, and I was just losing patience by that time. And there's just, it just, uh, you know, it, there's just not enough of what it claims to want to do. And uh, I just, it, it didn't really do a whole lot for me. So Talk to Me was another film that everybody seemed to love, but I just seemed to be missing the boat on that. Saltburn was one of the biggest disappointments of the year. This was uh, from Emerald Fennell, who directed the best film of 2020, in my humble opinion. That was Promising Young Woman. I loved Promising Young Woman. I thought it was a terrific film uh, and had high expectations for Saltburn. And Promising Young Woman was so carefully crafted. Uh, it was just so tightly edited. Saltburn is just a long slog. And basically, it's just a reworking of the same thing we saw back in the 90s with... Uh, uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, and we saw it with uh, the hand that rocks the cradle, and, you know, somebody wants to be somebody that they're not, and they want to move up the class ladder or whatever, and uh, single white female, that's another one that comes to mind. It's the same thing, just kind of uh, reworked those same themes. And so uh, uh, just really, really not good at all, and uh, just a real <laughs> chore to sit through. And Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, I had high hopes for this last chapter in the Indiana Jones saga, and unfortunately, uh, the CGI kind of undid the film, and uh, Harrison Ford does the best he can. I mean, he's 80 years old, uh, but everybody seemed to be, no pun intended, dialing it in, and there was just a, and the final act of the film just it completely collapsed, uh, it just seemed a little nonsensical to me. Uh, there are some some well executed action scenes, but it's you know the the entire first twenty five minutes of the film is just setting up the rest of the film's plot, and you 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 can't help but remember when Spielberg set up the entire plot of Raiders of the Lost Ark in ten minutes flat, and we were on our way. And this film gives you a twenty five minute prelude before you even get to the the main story, and so. Uh, just uh, a real disappointment. I, I hate that this is the way they're most likely going to close out the Indiana Jones um, film franchise, the ones with Harrison Ford. I mean, they could reboot with an, a younger actor, but I. Uh, anyway, uh, it's it was a, a disappointment. Um, so those are a few of the overrated or maybe uh, just some of them aren't overrated. I think uh, Indiana Jones did not get great notices, but some of these films were loved, beloved, and I'm not among the ones who love them. And I just, uh, you know, this is my show, so uh, I'll have my say when people ask me about certain things. I try to be as honest as I can, and uh, for whatever it's worth, those were my gut feelings. So thank you for tuning in to this year-end edition of Adam's Corner. We'll be back next time with an episode covering the December Blu-ray releases. I'm not sure who the guest is going to be, but I'll be bantering it up with someone, uh, as I typically do on the Blu-ray episode, as we round up all the titles for December 2023. Until next time...